God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. You know, about a week ago, it was actually Saturday, a week ago Saturday, my family and I were in one of my favorite places in the country, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It was the start of spring break for the girls, and we rented a cabin, and we spent a little time there, and we love to hike as a family. Um, we've done several hikes in the past, and so you've got to understand the, the ages of my kids. I've got an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. So when we say hiking, you know, we're not talking about like trekking across the whole Appalachian Trail. You know, we do little hikes. We love to find waterfalls. That's kind of our favorite thing. And you can collect these medallions to put on your hiking sticks when you've done a hike. You can buy the medallion and you nail it on there and uh, then you have proof, you know, that you, you, you've done this hike. So we were there last Saturday. The weather wasn't particularly great. It was threatening rain, but we said, let's, let's see if we can sneak in a, a short hike to get to one of these waterfalls. So we researched and we landed on Grotto Falls, which we were particularly excited about because it's the only waterfalls in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park that you can walk behind, right? So have you ever wondered, like, what does waterfall look like from the other side? Yeah, we were excited about this. My girls particularly were excited about this. The problem was we drove to the, we tried to get to the trailhead where you launch out on this trail. It was about a, a three-mile round trip to the waterfall and back. And the road that connects to the trailhead was closed. Like it's, it's, apparently, they don't open it till the, the 1st of April, you know, and there's no more threat of ice or snow or what have you. So we had two choices. One is we could give up the hike, or we could figure out another way to get there. And I said, we're going to figure out another way to get there. And I looked at the map, and there was another trail that we could get to. And I thought, oh, it's probably going to only add a mile or two to the hike. (laughs) You're already laughing. You know where this is going, right? It ended up being over six and a half miles round trip, right? So more than double the original hike. Now, I realized, and Jody and I both, about halfway through going up to the waterfall, that our girls are not going to make this unless we paint a picture for them to keep them going. So we started talking about how great this waterfall was. And believe it or not, I've got a a proof picture. We made it, okay? So put that picture on on the screen. We made it to the waterfall, and we never would have made it there if the girls hadn't been excited about seeing this. You know, they'd never seen this waterfall. They wanted to see it. So the vision, the picture of the future kept them going. The problem was, I got up there. We had fun. We took pictures. We had a little snack right by the rocks. And then I realized we've got to get all the way back down. And there's no waterfall to, you know, keep them moving and, and incentivize them. And our five-year-old in particular, I thought, I'm not sure if she's going to make it, right? Or I'm not sure I'm going to make it because I'm going to be holding her on my shoulders the whole way. So here's what we decided to do. We decided to say, girls, if we make it down, we better make it, (laughs) when we make it down, we're going to take you to a place that you will love. And I'll put a picture up on the screen of where we said we're going to take them. Now, you know it's going to be good when they spell it like that, right? Now, I I don't know what a shake in a dog is, (laughs) but but I knew that this place had great milkshakes. See, we'd been there before. In fact, if you want the best strawberry milkshake, I mean, I'm not making this up, the best strawberry milkshake you'll ever have in your life. Like this guy that owns this place, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. He gets strawberries at this one particular time of year from this one particular farm that are the greatest strawberries ever, and he buys them for the whole year, and he freezes them, and then he makes the strawberry milkshakes all throughout the year. And so we knew this, and we said, girls, strawberry milkshake, strawberry milkshake, you can do it. And that kept them moving. And yes, I did have to carry... Uh, Karis on my shoulders for a while, and it did rain, like pouring down rain for the last mile of the hike. (laughs) But we made it to the end because of the vision of the future. 
the vision of the future. So I might say it this way, without a vision of our destination, we're not going to make it. Like, there's no way we can keep going, that we can endure, that we can persevere. So where I want us to go this morning in our text, in our study of God's word, is I want us to go to the very end. Like, I want to paint a picture for you of the waterfall that awaits us at the end of the trail and the strawberry milkshake that awaits us too. It's like both of them put together. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And not only is the Lord good, but our final destination, our our resting place along this journey, along this trail, it's going to be more beautiful, more wonderful than you can imagine. Now, why do we go there on Easter Sunday morning? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, we've been in this study of Revelation. And I want you to see how all the passages we've been looking at in Revelation and these seven letters to the seven churches all point forward to the end of all things, to the eternal kingdom as we're going. The second reason is, I can't imagine a better time to be in this passage than Easter Sunday morning. Here's why. This is as good as it gets for us this morning, right? In other words, you're dressed up looking fine. I mean... We got some suits in the room. We got some jackets, right? We got some beautiful dresses. I don't see any Easter bonnets around. I've been looking for those all morning. Whatever happened to the Easter bonnet? I mean, come on. We, we got a little bit of a hat right here. Not exactly an Easter bonnet, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. This is, this is as good as we look. Maybe you've got family in town. You're enjoying that. Maybe you're going to eat some good food later today. I mean, I hope all of us are going to eat something delicious later today. I don't know what the weather's going to hold. I think it's supposed to rain, but yesterday was beautiful. I mean, this is as good as it gets. For many of us, life doesn't get any better. It doesn't get higher than, than having a special holiday with family around, eating good food, dressed up in our Sunday finest. And I want you to see from this morning's text that as good as it may be, it pales into comparison to what is to come. And the reason you need to know this, you need to be reminded of it, you need to see it, is we still have a journey to go. We're still in the middle of a hike. We've got a ways before we reach the end. And the picture of the destination will change and inform the way that you handle the trail. The destination matters. It will inform the way that you travel. And that's why I want us to go to Revelation 21. So go ahead and open your Bibles. You know, this passage is easy to find, right? Just flip to the very end. (laughs) There's uh, Revelation 21, there's Revelation 22, and then there's the end of the Bible, and we're going to be in Revelation 21 this morning. Now, while you're turning there, let me set this up for you with a little context, because I'm going to fast forward through a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> I mean, can we just say that? Like, there's a lot of crazy stuff in Revelation. I don't mean that irre- uh, irrelevantly, or irreverently, rather. I mean that in the sense there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a, it, it's like an epic conflict that's going to unfold. But let me summarize the whole book of Revelation and all those the apocalyptic imagery and all those symbolism. Let me just summarize those using three words. There will be conflict, there will be victory, there will be judgment. When you think about conflict, I want you to know that the conflict at its core and root is always spiritual. It will manifest itself physically in various ways with armies and wars and other kinds of things. But at its root, it is always the enemy of God trying to usurp the throne from the true king. Now, when you think about victory, you need to know that no matter what happens in the future, no matter what is foretold in Revelation, that quite honestly is difficult to understand. It is difficult to interpret. But no matter what happens, victory is secure. It won't even be close. So don't imagine in the book of Revelation that there's this conflict where, you know, it's like two, you know, almost equal armies and, you know, God's army just, you know, maybe barely overcomes the enemy army. That's not what you see in the book of Revelation. 
You see God speaking a word and the enemy falls flat. You see the enemy being cast into the lake of fire, being bound and chained up to make room for the kingdom that Christ will rule over. You see the death of death. So there's conflict, there's victory. The last thing, there's judgment. Now, you know, we tend to get all nervous. We talk about judgment. And to some degree, we, we should. We should be sobered by the fact that God is holy, like we were just singing about. And we are not. And the earth is far from holy. But when, I, when you think about judgment in the context of Revelation, I want you to think about this phrase. All things will be made right. All things will be made right. That's the why behind the judgment. All things will be made right. Now, with that in mind, I want us to read the picture of the end. One of the most glorious passages in Scripture. And so I would like us to stand for the reading of Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Would you stand with me? I will read it. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is God's word for us, his church this morning. You can take a seat. This passage is a description, in fact, the clearest, most extensive description of where we will spend eternity. There's a lot of confusion around that. In fact, I'd say it this way. It doesn't tell us as much as we wish it did, does it? There's not a whole lot here to really paint you know, a detailed, um, literal, in vivid color picture of exactly what life will be like for eternity. But I'll say, also say this. It tells us enough. We know what we need to know. So what does it tell us? I want to break it down in three categories as we kind of unpack these verses. Number one, it tells us about some things that we know will be there. Number two, it tells us about some things we know won't be there. And number three, it tells us about a wonderful offer that's made to you and me. And so that's the outline of my message that I want to chase down here. Let's talk first about things that we know will be there. New creation is the first. We know there will be new creation. Now we see this in a couple different places, verse 1 and verse 5, but before we reread a couple of those verses, I want to say this to you. Creation is the very first theme of the Bible, right? I bet most of you in the room could, could finish this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Look now at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this theme of creation, the very first theme of Scripture, is being brought back at the end, and there's a new creation. The creator, the artist, is up to something new, up to something beautiful. It's a new creation. Now, when you hear the word heaven, singular, you usually think about, you know, where God is living, you know, the abode of God. It's actually not the intention here. The intention here is the atmosphere, the sky. So there's a new earth, and then there's a new heavens. In other words, the sun, the moon, all things is new. In fact, we're about to see later on, there's actually not a sun, there's not a moon, because God himself is the light source. So the heavens will be remade, the earth will be remade. There's a newness here. God is going to bring in a new creation. That's the first thing that we know will be there. Now, this phrase at the end of verse 1, for the first heaven and first earth passed away. This is significant because it reminds us of a principle that's true in Bible and I I think it's just true all throughout life and that in order for something new to emerge, something else must almost always pass away. In order for something new to come, something else must oftentimes die. Now, John is saying that the old earth, which is the one that we're living in now, the old heavens, which is the one that we're gazing up in now, will pass away. But long before they passed away, something else died that will make this new creation possible. In fact, I should say someone else died to make this new creation possible. I have a favorite scene from Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I bet most of you in this room have seen this film. I have a favorite scene, and in this favorite scene, I like it despite the fact that they take a verse from Revelation 21, verse 20, it's actually verse 5, you know, I will make all things new, and they completely rip that verse out of the context of Revelation 21, and they put it in the middle of the gospel accounts. And despite the fact that they do that, I love it. (laughs) And I think I can make a theological case that it works, even though scripturally it's in the wrong place. Let me explain what happens in this scene. Jesus is carrying his cross to Golgotha. You know, the place of the skull. And at one point in time, he stumbles under the weight of the cross and the cross falls over and crushes, falls on his head. And Jesus is already bloody from the beatings. He's in terrible shape and his blood kind of coming out of the corners of his mouth. It's a miserable sight. And his mother, Mary, is watching this from a distance. And when he falls, she has a flashback. She has a memory to when Jesus was three or four years old. And he was running out in front of her, chasing a bird, playing in the sunshine. And he tripped and he fell. And as a young mom, what did she do? She ran to him. She comforted him. And now as an older mom, she sees her grown son crushed under the weight of the cross. And her motherly instinct overcomes her, overpowers her. She breaks through the guards. She runs for her son, all along remembering back in her head 30 years ago what it was like to hold him and comfort him and make it okay as he was crying. And she comes up to comfort her son, Jesus Christ. And he looks at her. And instead of her comforting him, he puts his bloody hand on her chin and he says, Look, mother, I make all things new. Someone had to die so that something new could emerge. And that newness of life, as good as it is now for us to walk in here with hope in our hearts, which is real, which is tangible, for us to be able to worship God freely, everything that we enjoy right now pales in comparison to the new creation 
There will be newness of life there, but you need to see how that goes back to the cross, how it goes back to the resurrection on resurrection day. In fact, I'd say it this way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us, is just the first. It's the first fruits is the phrase that's used. Everyone who puts their hope and trust in him will be resurrected and creation itself will be resurrected, will be made new, will find new life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you see. That's what awaits us in the future. So number one, we know there will be new creation. Number two, we know there will be God's presence. God's presence. Look at verses two and three. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, this is a different picture than what we usually think about heaven. Okay, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up most of my life, and a lot of even in my adult life, really, until I started really studying um, this passage and other passages, I had a picture of heaven that it's going to be somewhere up there and it's going to be somewhat maybe like in, intangible, like maybe you can't really touch and feel much and we'll maybe just kind of like float around like disembodied spirits playing harps and worshiping God all day. I mean, that sounds terrible to a 16-year-old boy, you know? But that was the future that awaited. Revelation 21 paints a very different picture. Here's what it says. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, will come down from the heavens and will rest on the new earth. And that union of heaven and earth, if you want to think about it that way, is the new creation. That is what we will enjoy. We will be on a new recreated earth. And I believe it's going to have the beauty even more so that our earth has now. Everything you love about this earth, you know, whether it's mountains or whatever it is, you're going to get to enjoy that. You're going to get to go in and out of that holy city where God's presence is. But here's the thing. God's presence won't be restricted to that place. In fact, we learn in the next chapter, there'll be no temple in the new Jerusalem. There's no longer a need for the temple because God's presence pervades. So think about the first incarnation. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Same Greek word, by the way, is here. He tabernacled. You know, he made his dwelling here on earth. But that was kind of sort of temporary, right? I haven't run into Jesus in the flesh lately. You know, he, he, he ascended back into heaven. There will come a day when we will be able to see him face to face. And God's presence will pervade the earth in a richer, more personal way, more tangible way than even what we can experience now, although certainly his presence is here. There will be a tangible, permanent, palpable presence of God. That's what this text is telling us. He will make his dwelling among men and it will never end. It won't ever be taken back up. The new Jerusalem is coming down and there will be a union of heaven and earth and those who believe will dwell there in his presence. So two things that we know will be there. Number one, new creation. Number two, the presence of God. And honestly, that's, that'd be enough. If that's all we knew, that'd be enough. But I want to talk about some things we know won't be there. And, and these are almost as good. The fact that they won't be there is almost as good. Here's what won't be here. Interesting one, number one, is the sea. The sea won't be there. Now, to me, that's kind of bad news because I love the ocean. I love beaches. And, and here, here's what commentators have done with this. If you, if you take this as there'll literally not be ocean, that would be an unusual earth. It'd certainly be possible. 
But I want you to hear this through the ears of the Hebrew people. The sea in that culture, in fact, ancient people in general, the sea was the place of chaos. The sea was the place that the monsters came out of. In fact, the beast himself in in Revelation comes from where? Comes from the sea. You remember the beginning of the creation, the spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters and it was chaos, right? The earth was void, etc. And then what did God begin to do in the first creation? He began to bring order to the creation. You know, let there be this, let there be that. Essentially, what most commentators believe, and I believe this too, is this is reassuring the Hebrew people that without a sea, without a place where chaos and evil and monsters can arise from, there will be no longer any reason to fear those things. They'll be gone, they'll be done. So the Hebrew people, as soon as they heard no more sea, they're thinking, oh, praise God. No more see, no more fear, no more scary things. And if you put yourself in their shoes 2,000 years ago, I guess their sandals or whatever they're wearing, you could kind of understand why no more see was good news. So that's the first thing we see, no more see. In other words, no more place for evil and chaos to emerge from. Now, will there actually be oceans? I don't know, maybe not. Won't ultimately matter because there will be no evil. That's essentially what I'm trying to say. Other things that won't be there, look at verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Is there a more beautiful phrase in Scripture than he will wipe every tear from their eyes? I mean, you hear how personal that is? I, I just picture the second person of the Trinity just, just, just doing this with each of us. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful image. There won't be tears. Not only will there not be tears, there will no longer be mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Now, mourning in that time, in that culture, was different. It wasn't just, well, I'm sad. It wasn't just, I'm crying over loss. Mourning was a set, formal period of time where you displayed to your community, your family, your friends, this reminder that the world is not the way it's meant to be, that I have experienced a deep loss that hurts, and they weren't afraid to display that. Our culture is a lot different, isn't it? So they would put on black, they would take ash a lot of times, and they would put it on their face, they would sit in ashes, and it was a public display to the community. I'm in mourning. It is a reminder to us all that this world is not the way it's meant to be. There will be no mourning because the world will be the way it was meant to be. Shalom will be restored. Peace, interconnectivity between all of the creation, right relationships between God, man, God, one another, God and the creation, shalom. Everything will be knit back together. No more need for mourning or crying. But most importantly, there'll be no more death. And I want to drill into this one a little bit because death, when you think about it, is the granddaddy of all of our fear. It's the root of all of our despair. It's the source, ultimately, of all of our suffering. You can think about death very literally, and that's enough, but you can also think about the death of things that matter, the death of relationships, the death of dreams, the death of of anything important, anything that that matters to you in life, you know in this world is only temporary. It's going to die. It's going to go away. There's going to be a time when you will no longer be able to physically commune on this earth with people that you love because they will die or you will die. It is the way of the world, but only the way of the first world. 
only the way of the old world. You see, in the new heaven, the new earth, there'll be no more death. There'll be no more separation. There will only be celebration. There will only be reunion. There will only be rich communion without the fear of loss because death will die. And the reason that death will die is because death already has died. We sang the lyrics earlier in the song. He is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. So what do I mean that death already has died? Death has been overcome in the resurrection. You see, all this goes back to Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. If there was no Easter Sunday morning, we'd have no hope that death would ever be overpowered in the new earth. If there was no Easter Sunday morning, there'd be no Christians, right? There'd be no faith. We would not be here this morning. We would have nothing to celebrate. If there was no resurrection, death has died and death will permanently be cast into the lake of fire. It will be no more. Now that is good news. I want to use this uh, analogy um, from time to time. You know, all my kids have been afraid of the dark. I used to be afraid of the dark. I remember being afraid of the dark, you know. Who am I kidding? I still get afraid of the dark sometimes, you know. If it's like late at night and you hear some strange noise downstairs, it's dark. It's like, oh boy, you know. The dark is scary, but all it takes to make you brave again is flip on that light switch. And you say, oh, that thing over there, it looked like a monster. That's just a stuffed animal, Right? Here's what happens in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The darkest, scariest, blackest room in our experience as human beings suddenly has a light switch flipped up and it's flooded with light. And that big bad monster of death is revealed to be a toothless, stuffed animal. And guess who owns it? Jesus owns it. Revelation chapter one, I have the keys of death, Jesus says. You don't have keys to something if you don't own it. He steps on it. He stomps on it. In fact, I want to read you a passage from 1 Corinthians that's just a a beautiful reminder of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I can't find it in my notes. I'll just say what I remember of it. It says, There will come a day when we will mock death and we will say, Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? And I picture us as a community surrounded by our loved ones who died in Christ. And we're going to be gathered together with our arms around each other. We're going to be saying, what you got for us now, death? What you got for us? You don't have anything, death. You've been overcome. See, there'll be no more death. That means there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more loss. There'll be no more separation. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more anything that keeps you up in the night and makes your soul grieve. What a glorious picture this is. I would say it feels so foreign to us, it's hard for our imagination to wrap itself around it. That's why I wanted to be in this passage this morning. I wanted to push us toward our hope. I wanted to push us toward a vision of our future in Jesus Christ. And one more thing I want us to see. Not only what will be there, what won't be there, I want you to see the offer that's on the table. I want you to see something beautiful that's being offered to us. Verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. You know, reminder of it is finished words on the cross. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, here's the thing. To feel the weight of this, you've got to understand the significance of living water. We hear living water today, and we're kind of like, meh, 
you know, whatever. I just turn on the faucet. You know, I get the bottle out of the fridge. Or, you know, some of you don't even drink the normal generic bottle of water. You got to have the specialty bottle of water, right? So if you saw a, a, a living spring or kind of water flowing out of the ground, you know, in our culture today, we'd be like, ooh, man, there might be bugs. <laughs> in the ancient culture, especially to people in a dry desert climate, they see some living water. Living means moving, right? It's bubbling out of the spring. It's a fresh spring. That is life for them. They built their cities around that because without that, they're dead in the water. We talked about this actually a couple weeks ago. Water in that culture is life. It is everything. It means vitality. It means a future. It means your family is going to get to live. It means your baby is not going to die. You see, water was everything to them. So when God is essentially saying, I'm offering you living water, here's how I want you to hear this 21st century church. He is offering life that is rich and full and overflowing with hope. And oh, by the way, it'll never end. Life that is rich and full and overflowing with hope. Anybody thirsty? I'm thirsty. I I need that. I want that. Isn't it beautiful that it's without cost? See, the gospel there's only one requirement in verse 6 for someone to drink from this living water. Look at the text. Some, someone shouted out, what's the one requirement? What, what do you have to have in order to drink? What do you see in the, in the text in verse 6? What's the one requirement in order to drink from this living water source? Thirst. 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 All you have to do is thirst. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Now here's the reality. You are <laughs> You are. The problem with you is you don't feel it enough. I don't feel it enough. That's our problem. Now, what do I mean by that? We are born thirsty. We die thirsty. And in the middle, we try to satisfy our thirst with all these other things. So when you're a kid, you, 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 know, you, you want more freedom. You're thirsty for that. So you can't wait till you're a teenager. Then you get to be a teenager. You can't wait till you can drive. Then you can drive. You can't wait to get to go to college. You get to college. You can't wait to get a job and earn some cash. And you get a job, you can't wait to get married because you're lonely. And then you get married and you can't wait to have kids because you still feel lonely. And you have kids and you can't wait to have a great house, you know, the dream house. And you get the dream house and you can't wait to have your kids out of the dream house. And then you can't wait to have grandkids in the dream house. And you can't wait to retire. And you retire, you can't wait till you feel better and your health kicks back in, which it may not. You see, you can't wait, you can't wait, you can't wait, you can't wait, and you die. Right? This is, this is true for us. This is the human condition. Now, why is that? Because we're thirsty people. And what is being offered to us is living water. And all these other sources that we go to, money, power, sex, influence, relationships, trying to stem off the thirst, it never works. Maybe for a moment, a brief time. How about some living water? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Some of you in this room have never, ever drank from the living water. You don't even know what it's like. You, you think you're a Christian, but you're confused. Here's what I mean by that. You might think you're a Christian because you grew up in a church. And I've been to every Easter Sunday service since I've ever been alive. Or I don't just come at Christ, uh, Christmas and Easter. I come every week. You know, maybe you give some money. Maybe you do some really good things. Maybe you think you're a Christian just because you know you're not Jewish. You're not Muslim. And you're, you know, I must be a Christian. I'm American. <laughs> right? Let us not be confused about what makes someone a Christian. You want to know what a Christian is? A Christian is someone who understands their thirst, understands that in their rebellious, hard heart, they have sought other things other than God to quench the thirst 
but they come to a point in their life where they see him as the true source and they say, would you give me living water? Because I don't have it. I'm thirsty. That's a Christian. Jesus, you're the source. I'm rebellious. You're the source of life. I can't get life. You have life. I can't pay for it. I'm bankrupt. But it's free to those who are thirsty. Some of you this morning, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ by simply saying, Father, I'm thirsty. I know I'm a sinner. And I need life. And this is the first time I've ever asked you for living water. And I want to receive that this morning. That's your invitation. Now the rest of you, the rest of us, you still feel thirsty sometimes, don't you? Yeah. That's because you're still on the old earth. You're not meant to be fully satisfied yet. In fact, Scripture tells us what you have now in part, you will have then in full. But the part is good, right? Right? The part is better than nothing. It's a richness. It's a fullness of life even that we have now, but we still long, we still hurt, we still have pain, we still have death, we still have all these other separations. I want to read you a couple of things that I believe are true, and then I want to tell you how we're going to close our service. We're going to close our service by proclaiming hope that is true for us. But here's what you need to know, church. Right now, you live with God's presence through his spirit, and that's good. But then you will see him face to face, and that's fully good. That's life awaits you. Right now, Jesus comforts you in your pain, and that's good, right? That is sweet. We need comfort. But then there will be no pain. He will wipe the tears from your eyes. Right now, creation groans. And if you listen enough, you can hear it. And you can feel it. But then, it'll be brand new. It'll be fresh. I believe we'll be able to experience that with all of our senses. I think we will smell the newness, smell the freshness. We will experience this creation not too unsimilarly to how Adam and Eve must have felt in that garden, but only better, you see. That's what's coming for us. This is our destination. Don't be confused. That's our destination. Now, here's how we're going to end our service. We've got a song that we're going to sing together. It simply says, amen, amen. I'm alive. I'm alive because he lives. Because he lives. And what we've done is we've asked some people uh, in the last couple of weeks at both our Franklin campus and our Brentwood campus, would you tell us what you have because Jesus lives? Will you tell us what you're holding on to right now because Jesus lives? Will you tell us, maybe it's a pain in your heart that you're holding, that you're trusting God with because he lives? Will you tell us something? And, and then we filmed them singing this song. Right? You're not gonna hear their voices, but what you'll, you'll see their lips moving to the lyrics of this, these, these words. Amen, amen, I'm alive, I'm alive because he lives. And then next to that image, you're going to see written on the side of the screens, you're going to see written that thing that they told us that they're having to trust God with, the thing that they're believing in faith. I'm alive despite the fact that I lost my mom. I'm alive despite the fact that I still have fears right now. I'm alive, I'm alive, but only because he lives. 
So we're going to watch this, and we're going to sing this song along with them. We're going to join our voices in community as we worship. So would you pray as we prepare for that? Our Father, all this goes back to a Sunday morning in first century Jerusalem when some women with tears in their eyes found their mourning turned into joy. And we have gathered here this morning, Father, not only to think back and look in reverse to the empty tomb, but we also are gathered here this morning to look forward. And we look forward to our own empty tombs, so to speak. We look forward to the restoration of all things. We look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We look forward to reunions with loved ones. We look forward to all things being made right. But most importantly, we look forward to being in your presence, being face-to-face with you, our creator, the one who knows us intimately, stitched us together in our mother's womb, that knows our hurts, that knows our pains, that knows our dreams and longings, knows all the way that we've tried to satisfy our thirst through other things. And you... I believe even maybe from your very hands will give us this water that we will drink from. And Father, sitting before you this morning is a thirsty congregation. Some that have never tasted the living water, I pray this would be their morning, their day, that this would be the day that they would drink living water. And many of the rest of us, that we know what that tastes like, but we keep going back to other wells and watering holes and would you take us to your presence even this morning in a way that would carry us forward along this journey and our hope of being with you and drinking until we are never thirsty again it is for that hope that we anticipate and worship in jesus name amen